0: We have Matthew J. Lewis, and he is the author of *Miss Mission Transition*. Hi, Matt.
1: Hi, Lindsay. Thank you for having me today. I look forward to it.
0: You look forward, yes, and and I loved your book, by the way. Thank you. I did listen to it on audio because it was easier to, you know, to get through because I'm not a big reader. So, thank you for putting it on audio. <laughs>
1: Well, good. Well, you can thank Harper Collins. Um, I, (laughs) I tend to be more of a old school hard copy person. I like to uh, touch things that I'm reading, be able to bend, bend the corners of the page and make notes and what have you. But uh, yeah, they've got it in half a dozen different formats out there.
0: So let's start out with a little bit about yourself and what you, your military career, kind of how you got started into this like path of your, what you call your passion project.
1: Sure. Well, <laughs> I don't know how far back we want to go, I'll, I'll take it from- uh, You decide. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from, from active duty. So I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the armor branch of the Army uh, way back in 1991 coming out of West Point. I spent five years active duty and uh, then segued into, uh, call it a secondary career in the reserves as it relates to the military. Uh, It was the mid-90s rationale for making that move. Uh, Students of history may recall the military was largely in downsizing mode. I didn't see uh, too much of a uh, uh, future uh, for the military and saw uh, transitioning to the civilian world um, as a better future for myself and my family. Uh, coming out, I, I rec- recognized in myself I didn't have uh, all of the skill sets that I needed to be successful in the civilian world. I'd done some shadowing, some informational interviewing, recognized that I needed to kind of upskill myself. And so um, I used graduate school as my transition vehicle, uh, which for me ended up doing a couple things. Uh, one enabled me a, a couple of years full time to uh, rub elbows with peers that had been living, working in the civilian world to kind of learn from them the way <laughs> the world really works, uh, and also enabled me to upskill such that when I eventually landed in the civilian world, I had some skills that would actually mean something, uh, which, you know, coming from the Army as a trigger puller was <laughs> was a big deal. It wasn't uh, very
0: marketable? It, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs>
1: no, well, I mean, it... it, it, it it raises uh, the point on a couple things. First, uh, is a misnomer that civilians have about military. Generally speaking, um, the, the stereotype that people tend to have, perpetuated by mainstream media, Hollywood, et etc., is that everyone serves in a combat arms capacity. They're trigger pullers. They all have PTSD, and they're yeah. all fractured. And you know, the reality is, uh, couldn't be further from that. Uh, the reality is, more than eighty-five percent of People in the military serve in roles and capacities, functions that could directly uh, accrue to an organization in in the civilian world. Less than 15% serve in a combat arms capacity. Now, that said, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, military personnel coming out want to stay in those roles. In fact, more than half end up in a civilian uh, career in a field that is different from uh, the one that they were in the military. So uh, anyway, I my example I was one of those combat arms people shooting big bullets downrange out of tanks, uh, and thankfully I suppose we don't have tanks rolling down the the street here that I could you know yes. directly <laughs> translate that skill set. <laughs> so anyway, I, that you know I needed to pivot a little bit and uh, upskill, and so I did off to the corporate world uh, stints at uh, places uh, like Procter Gamble, General Electric, and and Deloitte. And over the course of that time, you know, when I got out, there really wasn't much of uh, by way of transition support. Um, the Army had what was called Army Career Alumni Program. ACAP was really at its in its infancy. It was administered in the last five days on active duty. When you're running around base or post trying to get a hundred other things done, it was uh, an exercise in the blind, leading the blind, and checking blocks. Uh, recognizing, and I, obviously I wasn't alone. I just one data point and a generation of veterans that went through this, I had to create my own process because there really was none. And for me, that uh, took the form of what color is your parachute and other references that I used uh, to, to put together my own process. And so I reached back in turn thereafter to help others make their way across. And over, over the years, this process grew and grew and um, you know put a little more meat more on the bones, if you will. And uh, over time, I got two pieces of consistent feedback. One was, you know, hey, thanks, it really did well for me. More times than not, folks would, you know, land well. And then secondly, you know, there's so many people coming out, we've really got to find a way to scale what you're doing. And you know, I would kind of poo-poo the thought because I never considered myself a writer. I got a D in English my freshman year at the academy, <laughs> so I shouldn't probably shouldn't be writing too many books. Um, Nonetheless, you know, fast forward many years and now I have um, classmates, brothers and sisters in arms, leaving the service, having devoted their entire adult lives, not only theirs, but their families, in service to the nation. And despite the fact that, uh, you know, many more resources, funding, et cetera, had gone towards uh, TAP and uh, Transition GPS and other programs intended to support these folks. The upshot is they were still left left to fend for themselves, and this, for me, is kind of the spark that you know finally urged me to uh, take up the, the pen and start putting pen to paper, taking the advice that people have been giving me all these years, and put in place, you know, codify this process that I'd had in my mind and had been uh, coaching others on uh, for many years. So that that was the it's a long winded answer to your question about how this thing came to be.
0: Well, you also talk about, uh, I think in the beginning, well, you talk about it through many of the chapters, how this is more, this should be seen more as a manual or a process that you go through and like, don't skip to this chapter because don't skip to the resume chapter, the interviewing chapter, like, and you need to go through this process. And I think you talk about um, how you kind of need to know what you want to do. Um, first and how you, can we talk a little bit about how you find that and like how you figure out what it is? Because I'll be honest, I've been out for five years now and I'm still kind of teetering on what it is I want to do. And so I find it interesting, like how you narrow that down.
1: Yeah, it it raises a number of points. Uh, First, just to lay out of the book, I, I purposefully structured it as what I call a field manual uh, coming from the military, I, I recognize veterans implicitly understand a crawl, walk, run, step one, two, three approach mm-hmm. with graphics, pictures, exercises. You know, do this, put the answer here, and now move on to the to the next stage. And so that the the book is purposefully organized that way. Uh, second, to your point around you know understanding first who you are in the book, I talk a lot about discovering the who portion of the self discovery sequence before the what. And just to tease that out a little bit, what I mean by who is, what are your personal passions? What are your strengths? What gets you out of bed in the morning such that if you could get up and go do that all day, you'd never go to work a day in your life. You'd go play all day because that's what you have fun. That's where you love spending your time. Uh, Wouldn't that be great for all of us? Uh, Over the what, the what being, let me put my... Uh, military occupational specialty and uh, Air Force, uh, Navy and, and uh, Air Force have different codes for it, the Army calls it your MOS, put that into a skills translator and outspits what I should go and be. So for me, take, take me as an example as a tanker, you know, coming out of the service, I could put tanker in there and it would spit out something like, okay, I should go be a truck driver, or I should go be a police officer, or something of that will. Reality was, and as I quoted earlier, more than half of vets end up in a different career field. That had nothing to do with what, who I was all about and what I wanted to go do. So uh, to your point of who, how do we get at that, well, let me spend a minute on that. I want to talk about why that's so difficult for veterans coming out. So the the, the who part is doing just that. And I walk um, uh, folks in the book through uh, a number of exercises. The first chapter is... Starts exactly there understand who you are and who you want to be understanding who you are There's a uh, number of exercises that get at identifying uh, Those particular strengths or passions. So I think you we quoted back and forth on an email that most folks spend you know less than 20% of their time in a given day leveraging your your personal strengths and uh, My goodness if we could just kick that up even double uh, you'd still be under fifty percent, but you would more than double uh, seemingly your productivity, or at least the connection with your personal passions.
0: Yeah, that was my uh, favorite quote. Sorry to, mean to interrupt you, but that was my one of my favorite quotes from your book. It's only twenty percent of people use their strengths on a daily basis, and that I yeah. mean, to me kind of blows my mind. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so from there, you know, once you identify that, the next step in the sequence is um, connecting that with your personality and, and why it's important to go from strengths to personality because it's much more difficult to link uh, the strengths with career fields per se, in terms of the, the science that's out there. And, you know, everything I throw in the book, it's all scientific Or <laughs> If nothing else in this thing, I did my homework. Uh, and, and so, and I call out, you know, three or four specific personality tests. You don't have to take them all. I'd recommend at least two. Uh, to reinforce the findings from one uh, that gives you a bit more confidence coming out of the importance of the personality test is that it links you uh, based on their statistics and years of collecting this data to specific career fields that would uh, optimally match uh, what your personality is which emanates from your strengths so that's kind of the, the sequence of things why that's so important from the outset and you just mentioned you're living through this and you're not all alone most veterans uh, don't find their optimal career field until well after their sixth post military job why this is so important to find an optimal career field coming out those that are successful in doing so will more than double their career earnings rate of retention and job satisfaction which is not only incredibly important for you as an individual and your ability to create wealth uh, but for your family as well as well as your prospective employer When you think about what most veterans do, which is come out easily within the first year, year and a half, they're on to the second, third, fourth, et cetera, job and so on. That doesn't help you as the transitioning veteran, your family or your employer, all of that turnover. Uh, When you consider the cost involved as an employer and having to backfill that employee and retrain and hire all the costs involved there. But think of it from a personal standpoint, you know, each one of those moves for you puts you that much Further behind from being vested in whatever retirement plan your prospective employer might offer you, uh, time and grade, if you will, in that organization, which would lead to, uh, you know, jumps up the pay band, raises, promotions, what have you. All of that starting over and over again—that that churn, if you will.
0: Well, I uh, also think inconsistency for your family as they also go through this process Absolutely. with you.
1: Yeah, and if if those jobs involve a relocation, my goodness, you're jumping all around the the country every, you know, so many months. It's just, uh, it's not a settled place. And uh, if if there are kids in the equation, I think it's even more difficult on them. So very important that we find that. Uh, If I could spend just a minute talking about, you know, why this is so difficult uh, for vets, you know, this has a lot to do with uh, the mission-first culture of the military. And, you know, it still tends to be the case that uh, most folks coming out, you know, they're going to spend not a sufficient amount of time uh, prior to their ETS. Having lived through it, and I hear continued stories today, and you'll, you'll see it in the case studies in my book, Time and time again, you know, that last assignment, whether you realize it or not, if they understand that you're leaving, you're going to get no better than a mid-block evaluation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, they're not going
0: to yeah. waste the top block on you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it's the time where you, you know, to, to take care of yourself and your family need to spend some time focusing on you. And that is... uh Different. That is a shift. That is a change. And because we're always about, you know, the we, uh, over the, uh, the I uh, in the military. Well, you know, th- this is kind of where that changes. It's going to feel uncomfortable. It may even feel unpatriotic. Um, but it, it, it's time if you, if you want to do right by yourself, your family and your prospective employer, it's start, it's time to start to shift that mentality. Um, Another thing that uh, folks run into as part of that, you know, why does it, the question being, why does it take veterans repeated attempts to find a job within their career field? Why do they job hop, job hop? Uh, You know, first of all, there's four reasons I'll highlight if you'll uh, humor me. Of course. Uh, The the, the first is folks, veterans coming out don't uh, appreciate the, the, the breadth of the civil military gap that they're going to experience. And let me just codify what I mean when I say a gap. Uh, first, I'll throw out the stat everyone knows, you know, less than one half or 1% of Americans have served on duty any time post 9-11. Uh, second, you know, folks in the uh, corporate world that have the jobs to which most veterans aspire, uh, less than 2.5% of them have any military experience whatsoever. So flip that around. If I'm a veteran coming out, I'm sitting down across the table from someone um, interviewing with them, uh, there's a better than a 97% chance they have no idea who I am, what I've done as a veteran or what I can do. And so it's incumbent upon us as a veteran coming out to to fill that gap. Trust me, they're not going to take the time to educate themselves unless unless they have a really well-developed veteran hiring program. And Corn Ferry tells us in their study that 80% of Organizations out there do not have specific veteran hiring programs. So, uh, and, you know, they also don't, veterans coming out truly don't understand uh, the loss uh, that it is really entailed. I know you wanted to get into the, the five stages of grief, and it's triggered by this loss. People don't understand everything that you're leaving behind and coming out. When you leave the military, you, you lose a real part of your identity. You lose your rank. You lose all the awards that you've worn on your chest all these years, the instant respect that comes with that and the recognition of that. Uh, You lose whatever authority came with that rank. You can no longer, you know, bark out orders whether supported by UCMJ or or not and expect that those will be followed. You lose the camaraderie of your peers based on your experiences, be it combat or otherwise. In, In fact, that camaraderie is typically replaced by competition. In the real world, I mean that's a real headspin. You you lose the certainty of, of a chain of command. Organizational structures tend to be replaced by a matrix environment, which looks very different from the hierarchical organizations you experience in the military. You lose the sense of community. Kind of build in support systems. Uh, everybody shopping at the the BX PX commissary on post on base. You know movie theaters, uh, housing, your medical uh, system medical all that it's all there and uh, you know it, it's suddenly you know dispersed it's not there and kind of structured and handed to you it's everything all you got to go and figure that out on your own more or less you know the, you, in the military you tend to have the, a daily structure a routine uh there's kind of references and manuals for everything uh you, you lose the common standards that come with that you lose tax-free allowances uh, uh combat pay other kinds of pay that you get are tax-free
0: you can't even, you can't, can't even donate to your TSP anymore. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So there you go. I mean, long story short, you lose a ton. And as I talk about in the book, you know, it, it's, uh, you need to anticipate that loss and consider working through the the five stages of grief that you know, Kubler-Ross, David Kessler talk about the five stages being denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and, and acceptance, uh, and recognize that and try to work through that as best you can uh, before you, you know, end up in the real world. So that's kind of point two. Point three would be why folks struggle again. Uh, the, the services and although they're, they're doing much better than they did back when I got out, uh, forever and a day ago, you know, the, the, the tap program and its permutations and the various services, while it's very well intentioned, it still doesn't meet the need. Uh, For a number of reasons, and I I won't belabor the point. I've already kind of hit the the who versus what and whatnot. Uh, And and then finally, you know, because of the mission-first culture of the military, it tends to prevent you from optimizing the benefits that you have before you go out, uh, such as attending TAP numerous times, attending at least 18 months ahead, bringing your, your spouse or partner with you to attend that, uh, as well as after, you know, taking advantage of post-9-11 uh, GI Bill, taking advantage of tuition assistance while you're in, attaining civilian-recognized certifications, uh, licenses, uh, things like that that would translate immediately be recognized in the civilian world such that you don't have to go and reapply and reattain the same things for which you already have the the experience and accreditation for. So, um Yeah, there's a number of things systemically that uh, explain that job hopping that tends to occur. And if we can recognize that sufficiently in advance, head that off and put some of these solutions in place that I advocate for in the book, I believe you're going to be so much better off.
0: Well, it was interesting. Yeah, the the part about the five stages of mourning because I, when I left the military, I also went and got my master's degree, and I was so I was not really around anyone that was military, and I did I felt a huge sense of loss because I mean even though, like you know, in the military, I'm having a bad day. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't really matter what it means because everyone around you knows what that means. It could mean that I'm having a bad day with my wife. It could mean that I'm having a bad day for combat. You know, I didn't sleep last night. And you kind of just give that person their space and, you know, you, you just kind of know what that means and you're surrounded by a community that understands or at least, you know, can be there to like, you know, to, to, to listen to you talk or just, just be there. And then you get out and you're around people that have no idea what that means and just no idea how to even like talk to you or you talk to them. So it's interesting. Um, and I think my, my five stages of the morning actually like we're through the years, you know, you say the morning, yeah. you say the depression. Yeah. And, and I think that those stages can actually last, you know, a yes. long time. And need you, you know, as you know, you know, the, um, the mentalness behind it is that, you know, you, you kind of go through those stages and then you come back and go through them again. And, and they're just kind of like, they're kind of intermingled with each other. So.
1: No, that's right. And and a point you raised there brings up another great point, which is, you know, you coming out, you're, you're not doing this alone. I I speak in the book of, of we as veterans having a tribe amongst us and to be successful in bridging that gap. And connecting with uh, vets on the outside that have gone through it to understand the path, lessons learned, what have you, uh, uh, but also take advantage of of folks that uh, are in organizations that can help bridge that gap. Through the, you know, the, the simple word here is networking, and it,
0: yeah, so it's let's a get word. into networking.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a word with which I suspect many folks in the military are, are uncomfortable with. Uh, I believe it t- tends to take on a negative connotation, uh, such as in that it's seen as being unidirectional, uh, meaning that you know, I'm going to reach out and you know, kiss the boss's rear end to try to get ahead. Uh, something, it's something that tends to be viewed as uh, a means to uh, help yourself in an untoward way that's not entirely above board and not an equal or level playing field. Uh, that tends to be the connotation, and, and that's being charitable. There's other uh, connotations in the military that I've experienced it, with individuals getting involved in multi-level marketing schemes per se, where networking takes on the, the form as being part of that uh, multi-level marketing issue. And uh, anyway, for me, it, it, it came across certainly, and as I spoke with people and in, in doing the case studies in the book, they they reflect the same. So, recognizing that it has a negative connotation, I try to head that off and I, let's redefine networking in the real world for what it actually is. It's a it's supposed to be a mutually beneficial experience whereby both individuals benefit from the conversation, the relationship. It's not intended to be a a one off. Uh, sort of thing. It's supposed to take on the form, uh, call it a, you know, coach, coach, coachee, mentor, mentee. Uh, It can take that sort of experience, uh, or it can just be veteran to veteran. And, you know, again, not everyone has these veteran hiring programs, but those that do, you know, please take advantage of those. And even if they don't, you know, leverage the tools out there, social networking, what have you, Uh, LinkedIn's a great example to identify those with military experience that, you know, may be uh, either working in an organization that you're targeting or living in a geography that you're targeting uh, to head out. Um, and as part of that, let me also throw out, um, and we can get more into this, veteran collaboratives and the the important role that they can serve and helping you get settled and coming out in particular geographies around the country and get connected, not only with extended networks, but services you might need in whatever community you're in as well. Um, anyway, that, that networking, and the again, I'll walk through, as I do in the entire book, a series of exercises. The, the first exercise is simply identifying what your network is. And I tend to think of it as concentric circles, the, the innermost circle being, who is it that you know uh, that you could pick up the phone or send a, an email or a text to uh, that could help answer your questions about whatever it is—your geography, your employer, your and whatever your issues are going to be in that area, housing, you name it. Uh, and but then your secondary, back to the concentric circles, you have secondary and tertiary elements of your network as well. Who are the folks that your primary network know that could connect you to them, and then they to the third set? And the, the sooner that you can connect from the primary to the others, and ultimately get answers to the questions that you need, whether that's within your perspective organization, within the community, for whatever services it is, the the better you're going to be, number one, and two, the more practiced you'll be about uh, with this this skill that would remain, will remain with you throughout your entire career. It is essential for your success in whatever career field you're going to go into. So the sooner you can get on it, the better.
0: Yeah, just a little story time for me. So I felt the same way about networking. I thought networking was sort of a form of like anything that wasn't teamwork kind of fell into the networking category. And um, so I, I didn't really do a whole lot of it during grad school. But then um, I had applied for a White House fellows uh fellowship at the White House and I was so excited I actually made it to the first level and I went to I was in California at the time and I went to um, Pasadena for my interview and everybody's all dressed up and it's like I'm just really I'm just very grateful to be there right so I go to our the first night and I'm meeting, I, we, we, when, you, when you go through this fellowship, through the interview process, you get assigned a mentor. So he's there with you and they kind of like, they kind of link you up with a mentor that's got your own MOS or your background. So I'm with like this Lieutenant Colonel who's logistics officer. Um, and uh, he's like, yeah, so... Um, you, oh, he's like, so you know the Emersons, and I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm like, yeah, of course I know the Emersons, that was the, uh, the ambassador at the U.S. Embassy, where I had done a State Department internship in between my master's, and um, I kinda, he kind of, the way he threw it at me, it was like, that, um You know, that like I was close with the family and stuff and I I never want to relay anything, you know, back to like, you know, uh, your military time. Like you want to be, you know, be honest about it. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I worked at the embassy at the time and stuff. So what? long story short, what had happened was, is my boss at the embassy, when I had reached out to her after my internship, she I told her I was applying. and And instead of her writing me a letter of recommendation, she had had him write one and she didn't tell me. So it was interesting to me, and I was like, "Oh, he's like, yeah, we saw your your letter of recommendation from John Emerson," and I was like, oh, "Okay, yes." And so I realized that at that point that it that was sort of networking because I had done the internship; it was free. I had worked hard, or, or not free, but it was unpaid. I had done the internship. I had a volunteer to do all the events for you know to be an escort and things. And so um, I just kind of that's that's that was my moment of sort of like networking mate, may just be something I can partake in because it happens in so many different ways. So that was kind of my networking background when I first decided that I I might try this.
1: (laughs) So It's a great example of exercising the network. After identifying, then you actually need to go out and exercise it. Again, whether it's informational interviews or uh, uh, shadowing or or what have you, there's all sorts of ways by leveraging networking uh, to help uh, position you to, to get educated and learn more about whatever your potential target is. You know, there's social media and there's tons on the web these days to to do your due diligence and, and research, which, you know, you really need to do before um, you show up and start asking people for help. Uh, you don't want to show up without having understood their background and, and what they are. One, for the simple point of Uh, Being acting as an icebreaker and initiating discussion, Uh, but two, you know, asking questions that can be substantive and and not repeating things that you already know and can be easily found online that tends to put off people if you're reaching out. you want to be cognizant uh, that they're ceding their time to you and their time is valuable. The civilian world, you know, time translates to money. So you want mm-hmm. to be sensitive to that and be very efficient and effective with the time that you ask for.
0: Right. And you also talk about, uh, you talk about you know getting your LinkedIn profile set up, and that can seem like a that can seem like a huge task for someone who's never had to actually do that. But you go through in your book and you talk about the steps. And um, I realized during uh, during listening to your book that I had a few things on my LinkedIn. I probably you know like my picture was a little grainy, and maybe it wasn't the right position. Some things I had you know just I had to go back and look at my profile as well because you gave some really good tips in there. But just how you get that set up, and that I mean that can be a great tool to to do what you want to do.
1: Yeah, it's really table stakes element. And, you know, LinkedIn's been great over the years. They offer you a year's worth of premium service for free as a veteran coming out. So check that out uh, when you're coming out. It gives you capabilities that the free version doesn't necessarily offer.
0: Well, and I've also found, too, that uh, there is a huge... Well, it's actually not huge. It's very small. But once you get into it, there is a, there is a veteran network on LinkedIn that is a is tight, tight network. And so to kind of just start to get into that and see what people are doing with their lives, it's it's interesting.
1: That's right. There, there's literally hundreds of, of networks out there that you can get plugged into. And again, leverage that as part of your uh, overall uh, mission, if you will, uh, to educate yourself about others and about the <laughs> targets that you have in mind.
0: So a few other things I wanted to discuss with you uh, to kind of go a little bit forward in your book. You talk about, okay, so once you land the job, you kind of have to realize um, that your your civilian counterparts may not have experienced all the things that you have. And kind of that interaction piece, if you could talk on that, because I've definitely felt uh, that, especially going to work on the Hill when everybody around me was uh, probably about 25 and I was like 38. And so um, just how how, what is your advice on that kind of?
1: Yeah, so in a word, what you're speaking to is a difference in culture uh, that folks tend to experience. And what I tease out towards the tail end of the book are what I call the various cultural dimensions that uh, define the differences in culture between the military and the different environments you'll likely experience in the civilian world. Uh, culture is uh, really d- defines the, the way in which people Uh, behave collectively in an organization. It tends to be based on the values uh, that uh, those organizations hold dear. So, you know, I I talk through the military and and its values, and regardless of what service you're in, they they each have a slightly varying set of values. But if you roll them up together, uh, you end up with a a set of values that tends to parallel a number of of behaviors uh, that that speaks to what... uh, military culture is all about. The the mission first environment, the team first approach, the hierarchical structure, the formal power bases. Uh, And, you know, I parallel that through uh, approaching two different, uh, two dozen different cultural dimensions. And I I, I contrast that with two different types of civilian organizations. And I'm, you know, uh, ballparking there. But at, at a high level, there tends to be you know larger, more uh, bureaucratic corporate organizations, civilian organizations. And I would contrast that with a, a second group of organizations that are smaller, more entrepreneurial in nature. And I, I go down each of those couple dozen different cultural dimensions and speak to how they're either similar or different. And to the extent that there's differences, what you as an individual will need to do to prepare yourself um one to to reach out and do the homework to understand that those differences actually exist that's the hard part but with that understanding then how do you prepare yourself for entering an environment where these differences are going to exist such that you can modify your behaviors whether it's communication style uh leadership approaches you may not be used to flexing your leadership approach and I portray, you know, half a dozen different leadership styles and how those can flex in different situations, same with communication styles. Uh, but, you know, everything from, uh, you know, I'll just highlight a few, you know, purpose. And again, the military is very mission uh, focused organization. The motivation or purpose behind a lot of things, unless you're working for a nonprofit uh, tends to be money. And, you know, that in and of itself is a, a core thing that really makes people's heads spin. You know, we're used to, uh, you know, God and country and carrying the American flag and all that. It's easy to understand your purpose and mission when, uh, you know, your your purpose is to fight and win the nation's wars. Uh, suddenly it's not, and it, it's very different. Again, it's going to feel uh, selfish. It's going to feel different. It's going to feel unpatriotic, but this is where you need to do, and again, I'm kind of getting into some of the exercises here, but it's a key one, and to help you define your new normal and help you understand how uh, you as an individual, your, your purpose, your passion, your personality, your career field, uh, all matches with that, that purpose and purpose in the organization. So for me, just as by way of example, uh, I work for a large professional services organization. And, you know, we as military people, we serve. We, we find much of our value in serving others. Mm-hmm. In fact, I quote Gandhi in the book, the, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And so for me, that's how I'm able to connect what I'm all about and that core uh, personality trait that I have coming out of the service to what I do today. I still serve clients every single day. It just takes a, a different form and a different environment. Uh, so for me, it's still all about service. That's what gets me out of the bed more. But that's just a single cultural dimension. You know, and there's, like I said, a couple dozen others here. Leadership basis, organizational structure, the power basis in the organization, the way in which onboarding and training takes place, the way in which compensation uh, is allocated, the way in which rewards and recognition is handed out. All of these things uh, tend to be very di- done very differently depending on the civilian environment you're in. And I walk you through all of these things and exercises like I just described described around the purpose about how to, to bridge that gap such that you don't find yourself in this new organization and your head spinning because you're experiencing these two dozen differences all simultaneously, which is what tends to happen.
0: Right. And I also feel like those differences because they can at times be so large that you you can also start to isolate yourself or just feel like you don't belong there. And it's like a year later and you're still kind of not getting it or not maybe wanting to get it because you just feel like you're so different. So I think that those right. things can really start to mess with you, your productivity. And, you know, I'm sure at that time, like you're, you know, if you have good supervisors or bosses, they see that and maybe you don't become the employee that they thought or had hoped that you could be. So you kind of have to like, when I was reading your book, I thought about that you kind of have to gut check yourself and um, say, you know, I need, I think you talk about, you do, you talk about creating new experiences or joining the veteran organization or, you know, things with inside your business or your workplace that can help you integrate and finding those people, like you also said, that you can reach out to and that can help mentor you through this process.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right, Lindsay. Again, it comes back to networking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to the extent you can begin to identify that network, whether it takes uh, the form of uh, an employee services group or uh, affinity group, uh, whatever the business would call it, It, to the extent you can find your tribe of veterans in that organization prior to stepping foot on in, or even better, leveraging uh, SkillBridge or some other internship opportunity and getting boots on the ground in that organization as part of an internship, so much the better. Uh, that enables you to confirm or deny whatever hypothesis you're operating under uh, for whether that organization or even that career field would be a fit. Uh, Nonetheless, back to networking in the organization, uh, finding your tribe, whether it's official or not, it's part of of an affinity group, find who those veteran peers are. And again, think of the concentric circles within that organization. At at the core, you've got your veteran peers. Uh, The the next most data would be that a segment of the population that are friends with those veterans, connection with those veterans and understand, you know, I'll call them the educated uh, you know, subset of the population that understands what veterans are all about. They haven't served themselves, but they get it. They, they've received training, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and use that secondary group to connect with their, you know, tertiary connection points. And again, the sooner you can make those connection points, the sooner that you're going to, assimilate uh, yourself within that organization and and really adopt that new culture as your own. And and that is really the key to, you know, finalizing and helping enable that successful transition and really position you. I I talk about a a hierarchy of behaviors and, and at the pinnacle of the of the triangle is being sufficiently one successful, two confident in where you've landed to be able to reach back out and offer lessons learned from your own experience and help others uh, go through the same way.
0: And that also leads me to something else I, th- I found very interesting. You talk about, um, and I'm not quoting you directly, but that you kind of owe it to the veteran that comes after you to be a good connoisseur of of being hired as a veteran and how like that that um, the understanding that you're a veteran and maybe that um how we leave we have to leave a good impression because we owe it to the next generation that you know these are these are jobs that we want them to have as well and how we kind of we owe that to those that come after us and i thought that was very interesting
1: yeah good goes around it's a team sport and you know we as veterans can't be successful without each other and um you know you, you you hit it on the head i think we we owe it to one another uh, to have each other's backs. We, we obviously had that in the military. There's no reason why that should, should change on the outside. Uh,
0: Two other things that I know, uh, was that I, well, I was laughing, uh, I was riding the train from Charlottesville back to DC, but I was laughing at your chapter where you talk about, um, the day of the interview is to get a hotel room ahead of time and get your clothes out, get them ironed. And then you talk about, I just like cracked up. You talk about going for that morning run. And I was like, he don't, he so knows his audience here. It's like, you have to go for that morning run to get your head right, you know, for the interview. And I just, it just, I chuckled. I chuckled because that was, that was such that guy, that process was so interesting and how you like laid it out for your reader. And I was just like, he he so knows his audience here. And I, I just thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, you know, like some people may regard it as, as minutiae, but you know, in writing the book, I tried to, you know, put myself back in my own shoes, where I was many years since, and boy, wouldn't it have been nice to have this sort of step-by-step guide to set me up for success. So, you know, that that's part of what was running through my mind the whole time I was writing it. Uh, the other point that you raise is that there's even more detail uh, beyond what's in the book. Uh, just a peek behind the, the publishing curtain here. So I, I came to find out HarperCollins has word limits on manuscripts. And oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> so I, I had to cut really a full quarter of my original manuscript. And uh, I said, okay, if you're not going to publish it, I'm going to put it on my website for free. And so it is uh, under the resources tab on my website, you will find those 25,000 words of additional detail. And, you know, you mentioned the interview approach the day of, there's even more detail you will found on my website uh, to include, you know, details around grooming and, and, and dress and kind of your, your basic load, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. for, for clothing that you might want to consider uh, if not for, well, if not for the, the, the role, what, assuming that you landed, but certainly for the interview stage. Uh, another key thing I'll just highlight while we're on that point out there are the, the financial exercises. Um, I think that that tends to be uh, uh, one of those things where folks don't give it uh, proper or due consideration and suddenly then find themselves on the outside and they're at a loss when it comes to negotiating with their prospective employer, uh, understanding where they may or may not have leverage. They also tend to not appreciate the, the tax implications Um, uh, one from the pure shift from the military to being out, but also uh, dictated by the locality in which you're going to to locate. So I walk you through three financial exercises that are going to very much help uh, position you for success. And those are out there on the website.
0: Well, even listening to, and I mean, that's also, that's a very valuable point. And also just listening to the process of going through that first interview and the things and steps that you knew, like if you add that up financially, like there are, there's money being spent there, the the outfits, the clothing, the transportation, the, and that's a job you don't even know you're going to land. That's right. So, and I think a lot of, you know, if there isn't a savings account or there isn't another income coming into the family at the time, those stages can seem very expensive and, you know, can, can cost you a lot of money.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um <laughs> unless uh I think you're very senior in the military, uh, you know, such that your your flag rank <laughs> that they, they don't quite uh go through all of those details and uh you know issue you uh, the the next round of garb that uh you're gonna <laughs> use for your interview. That that's all left to you.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was very interesting. And then also um you, you talk about people hire people, not systems.
1: That's right.
0: Can you delve a little bit into that topic?
1: Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, a, a fallacy that you know, many veterans make is they think, well, uh, uh, in order to get an interview, in order to get a job, I need an interview. In order to get an interview, uh, you know, I need to send off a resume. And so uh, that logic leads to them, creating a resume and essentially carpet bombing the companies around the country with a, a standard resume. And lo and behold, you know, probably less than 1% of those they sound out ever receive a response. Uh, part of that is because uh, veterans sent off in that mode are uh, sent through scanners and those scanners use uh, all sorts of algorithms, automated uh, searches that are intended to screen you out of the hiring process. Uh, and, you know, essentially save time for those in the HR department uh, to not have to spend time reading your resume. The, the, the second reason it, it never gets picked up is because it, it, it doesn't have that human contact as a result. And mm-hmm. so once again here, this comes back to the network. The, the idea or your purpose should be, yes, you're going to have to have a resume by way of introduction. But it needs to be tailored specifically to that organization. And it should be used as an entree uh, via a networking contact in that organization, uh, not some uh, nondescript email inbox uh, to an HR person. It's uh, the connection with those personalities that are going to lead to the referral uh, that, based on that individual's word that's already working for the organization, will get you. Uh, that interview that you seek by submission of the resume. So so that's Um, the key.
0: And then... Oh, yes. This is my favorite. Um, You were talking about hire a reference checker. I like that because I think what you were talking about, what you were getting at, well, I mean, it's kind of like me trying to have my friend call my references and pretend like he works for somebody and try to see what the reference is going to say. But you talk about having, can you go into a reference checker? And then also, um, I think it would be great for our viewers to hear about how you deal with a a reference that you may not think is going to give you a good one, so you call them. So if you could talk about that, because I, I found that like very interesting.
1: Yeah, so um, great point, Lindsay. What, what she's talking about, so not every organization is going to ask for a list of references, and that's not something that you have to voluntarily provide. But for those that do, you're going to want to have on standby a list of individuals that can speak to the veracity of the accomplishments that you're putting forth. And ideally can you know uh, praise uh, you and your performance uh, as part of that experience Uh, you may have an experience in your past uh, that you know may not be the the most glowing and you know you may be limited in terms of uh, those that you can reference so
0: well but then you but you have sometimes you you talk about you have to reference them if they're your supervisor so you don't really have a choice
1: that's right. Standard application forms being what they are, sometimes you do have to put them, uh, you know, their their names and contact information. So you may be boxed into a situation uh, where someone you've not had a great relationship with may be called upon to speak to uh, the, the, the veracity of uh, your employability. And so these, uh, you know, call them uh, reference checkers, if you will, uh, you can do, as you said, uh, or there's, you know, agencies that you can hire to do just the same. And the, the simple exercise they do is uh, call up those references and you know, see what they would have to say. And, uh, you know, I, I think if you come across to uh, your point, if you come across one that is not uh, enabling uh, such a positive review, and normally organizations, uh, policies in organizations are such that, they typically don't allow uh, folks to go into much more detail other than confirm the fact that, yes, this person is who they say they are, and, yes, they worked here from X to Y date. But if the, their corporate policy allows them to expound beyond that, uh, this is where you potentially run into trouble. For those that may have uh, uh, a negative feedback, I, I think uh, you want to uh, call them out in a nice way and say, look, you know, I know we haven't had uh, the best of relationships. I'm trying to do this for me, my family, what have you. I would really appreciate it if you left your comments to ABC, whatever they were. And that that may be a tough call to make. Uh, but again, it's it's part of you having to look out for yourself
0: hmm.
1: um, and your family and everyone that uh, you're trying to do good by here in this next chapter of your life.
0: Yeah, I had one and I had a friend call him and I thought that it was going to be negative and he, it actually was positive and I think he understood uh, maybe through but that we I realized that we were on a level that we were both going to support each other because when I left that job I I was very careful not to to say anything negative about him in in the community in the consulting community because I knew I knew how large it was and I also didn't think that was respectful regardless of what happened between us. Um and I found that he was actually like he was actually more than giving of like a good reputation for me to this person. And I and I think that then that erased that like level of like, do I put him on the resume? Do I do I not? And so I think it helped me just realize that, okay, this is gonna be a, this is a friend versus a foe. Yep. Yep. So,
1: yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep.
0: So um I well I was also thinking the other night too, what if your book got picked up by the armies and issued or the military issued to everybody before they got out.
1: Well, that's my great desire. Uh, I'm biased, obviously. Um, I I would challenge anyone to find a a book that better describes the the process or takes you down the crawl, walk, run path to help veterans, you know, make that warm handoff and transition from the military to uh, their future, whatever that is. And, you know, I, I walk people through a Uh, a map uh, at the outset of what those typical career paths look like and what the the typical skill sets are, the strengths you need to, to succeed in them. Uh, It's not one size fits all in terms of a career field, but the process for finding that uh, I think is what I've tried to codify here. Uh, Trust me, I've tried many angles to bring exactly what you're talking about to fruition. Uh, At at this point, um, Forcing that into standard curricula uh, probably isn't realistic. Uh, What I am trying to do is get it into uh, the BXs, the PXs, the NXs, uh, et cetera, uh, on every single base. And once the book converts to uh, paperback, uh, it will be there. Uh, It's still available online, obviously, um, anywhere, but in terms of actually getting it physically on the shelves, it, it will be so, but only in the paperback version.
0: Okay. Um, and so if, if if our viewers wanted to find it, they could probably find it on Amazon, or where can they find it today if they wanted to purchase it?
1: Yeah, so the the publisher is HarperCollins, among the biggest in the world. So basically anywhere books are sold, uh, you'll be able to find it in one of its versions. Obviously, Amazon, and uh, I think a half dozen different versions uh, there on Amazon. So yeah. And my website, if I didn't mention it before, is uh, MatthewJLewis.com, Lewis is in St. Louis. Again, lots of references out there and look under resources and also check. There's a lot of articles and additional thought pieces and videos under the media tab as well.
0: Okay. And thank you so much for your time. I want to personally thank you just for my own development. Your book really helped me. And then also, you know, for the podcast to our viewers um, before we leave you though, is there any like last minute thoughts? I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Yeah. Again, Lindsay, thanks so much for having me, and I'm I'm really glad you like the book. Like as we started, this is a personal passion project of mine. Uh, the dirty little secret in the publishing world is authors make uh, really nothing on their books, and that's certainly been the case here.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that.
1: <laughs> no, don't don't take pity. My, the, the point is, I, I'm here to help, and that's what this thing's all about. Uh, if I can leave your listening audience with just a few things, though. Uh, yeah, this is probably among the most challenging and stressful periods of your life, getting out of the military. Yeah, but you know, take heart. Uh, we spent a lot of time about the challenges and overcoming them. But there's a ton that you bring with you in terms of skill sets, and in some ways that could could be hard skill sets. But certainly the soft skill sets that you bring with you from the military uh, are utterly translatable and are going to uh, accrue in a very successful way in whatever organization you're in and help them with their productivity and level of competitiveness. Uh, Second would be to just to reinforce or put stomp the importance of tribe and leveraging that tribe via networking, overcome your potential initial discomfort with that, uh, connect with folks proactively before you get out and uh, certainly keep that ongoing. That's going to be an ongoing skill set you're going to need to perfect over time. And uh, last thing is, you know, with regard to whether it's my book or someone else's, uh, although I prefer mine, uh, begin reading it early. And I would suggest this sounds crazy, I know, to folks in the service, but, you know, as soon as two years before getting out, uh, start to digest and work through the exercises. Again, you're going to find yourself, if you come up with those answers prior to getting out, and find yourself in an optimal career field, you will double, you know, again, your corporate earnings, rate of retention, job satisfaction, all of which accrues uh, incredibly importantly to you, your family, and your prospective employer. So take care of yourselves, and I'm here to help in any way that I can.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks, Lindsay. Appreciate all it. Right, thanks. Bye. Bye